All right, we've begun a study through one chapter in the Gospel of John, a special chapter. Obviously, all the chapters of the Gospel are special, but this one is special in a special way. So this is uh, the setting, the Last Supper. The very end of the Last Supper, Jesus has spent the evening not just sharing a meal with his disciples, but he has taught them, and he's given them a private teaching. Many times he taught in public and he taught openly to anyone that was willing to listen. But in this case, it was just at the beginning of the evening, just the 12, and now it's been narrowed down to the 11 as the betrayer, Judas, has left the dinner and gone out to do his, his uh, betrayal. And uh, the 11 remaining in the room, Jesus has spent the evening giving them final instructions. They don't really understand what's waiting the next day, and actually even later this night as Jesus is about to be arrested and, on false charges and, and taken away to trial, leading to his crucifixion. They don't really get that, though he's been warning them about it. They, they don't fully understand yet, uh, but he knows. And so he spent the evening giving them uh, very, very important final words of instruction and exhortation. And then before leaving the upper room that night and going out to the, to the um, Mount of Olives where he will pray some more and where the events of his arrest are planned to take place, uh, he stops and he prays. And he prays, many times he would pray, he would leave his disciples in one location, he'd go to another and he'd pray in private like he instructed his disciples to do most often. But in this case, he chose to pray in front of them. He chose to pray in their hearing. So what we gain from that is that he is actually and really praying, but he's praying for their benefit and for ours through their ears to learn something about who he is who the Father is that he's praying to, something deeper about their relationship, and certainly something deeper about the purpose that is in the Father's heart and the Son's heart uh, as we're coming to the culmination of why Jesus entered this world. So uh, it's called the high priestly prayer. The reason it's called that is, of course, because Jesus is interceding He's praying for us. He's praying for the church. But before he prays for the church, he actually prays for himself. And the first five verses, as I've shared, are that portion of the prayer where he's primarily praying about himself and the Lord's, the Father God's purpose in sending him into the world. And then from verse six and beyond, he's going to broaden that prayer and he's going to focus more attention directly on the disciples and then ultimately on us who will later believe. I've described these first five verses as um, perhaps one of the two most uh, in-depth, theologically in-depth portions in all of God's word, along with, you know, I, and this is just my personal opinion, you know, along with uh, Ephesians chapter one, and uh, to me, you can kind of flip a coin to determine which of the two is more in-depth. They're, they're, both, they're both treading on ground that is far beyond natural human comprehension. But by the grace of God, the saving grace of God, um, our hearts and minds 
are open to be able to begin to comprehend some of the things that are happening in this portion of the prayer. So let me reread. Uh, we've done two studies so far in these first five verses, um, but let me reread the, the, the five verses and then we will uh, tackle the next portion of it this morning, which will be verses two and three. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In verse one, our study last week, we identified three key points from the verse. One was just about the posture of the Lord in praying in that he lifted his eyes to heaven. And from that, we, we identified that, that Jesus is emphasizing just by the practicality of how he prayed, that heaven is a real place, and he was looking beyond the ceiling of the room that they were in, and he was looking into heaven itself, and that he lifted his eyes, meaning he lifted his face to heaven as he prayed because he was in a real relationship with his heavenly father and the nature of that relationship was a face-to-face -face relationship. And then we focused our attention on the very first words out of his mouth as he prayed, Father, the hour has come. We identified that, that he was focused out of all the hours of his life, every single hour that the Son of God lived in this world was a more important hour than anybody else has ever lived. But his entire life was brought into this world with a single specific hour in focus. The most important hour of the most important life that's ever been lived was immediately ahead of him. And he's not talking here about a literal, as I, as I emphasized last week, a literal 60-minute hour but a very short and compact amount of time in his life it was going to take place over the course of just the next day, the next 24 hours, and then the next few days that followed in which this hour is all about his sacrificial saving death that would be accomplished on the cross, leading to his resurrection from the dead, leading to his return from this world to heaven in the great event that we call the ascension. And so he's focused on that. That's why he's coming to this world, and that's what's uppermost on his heart and his mind. And then the third focus, we're, we're stretching it out. And we just touched on it last week. We're going to develop it a little bit more this week and then in two weeks because we have home church next week but in two weeks we'll come back to this study lord willing and we'll we'll more fully develop it and that is he's praying about glory he's praying about a glory that he formally 
previously had possessed and experienced and displayed. But in some sense, and we'll develop this, Lord willing, in two weeks more fully, in some sense that glory has not been on display through him to the same extent that it formerly was. And he's praying for a restoration of that glory. And the glory he's praying about is what we can only describe as a divine glory. The glory that only God himself exhibits. It's a glory which is ultimately the emanation of God's own nature and character and expression. What it is that makes God to be God and sets him apart from all others, all other creatures. But here, what we see and understand is it's a shared glory between the Father and the Son. And he begins to pray that the Father would glorify him so that he in turn can glorify the Father. And the link between the end of verse one and where we're now going to be developing in verse two and three is that the events that are immediately ahead of him have everything to do with him being glorified and through him, the Father being glorified. But for the rest of our focus on the glory aspect, we're gonna save that, as I said, for two weeks from today. But for today's study, I wanna focus on the principle of the authority of the Son. And this is identified and developed briefly for us in verses two and three. So let me just reread those two verses. Keep in mind, Jesus himself is praying this to the Father. Since you have given him, him being himself, the Son of God, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So I want to mention again, I mentioned this last week, but what Jesus is praying for in verse 2 is he's praying to the Father about things that are already well known and well established between the Father and the Son. He's praying about a previous interaction between the Father and the Son. A previous interaction that took place not just earlier in the natural life of the Lord Jesus in this world, following his birth in Bethlehem and, and his taking on human flesh and becoming a human being, but he's praying about an interaction between the Father and the Son that took place in the far distant past, way before Bethlehem. Not even in ancient world history, earliest world history, but predating history as we know it, what theologians can only describe as eternity past. Before Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But before that, before he created the heavens and the earth, what was there in existence? God, and only God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they existed in perfect 
harmony and fellowship. But there was a purpose in their heart and mind that they shared. And agreements were made in the, in the sharing of that purpose. And in this case, it's an agreement between father and son. And it's an agreement about what would unfold at the perfect unfolding moment of history when that time eventually did come. And now we're at the fulfillment hour of that agreement that was made in eternity past. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. That, that verbal phrasing, have given, indicates a past, present, or future giving. Past, present, or future giving. Past, have given. That's the way language functions. We understand that. John could have written it differently under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He could have written this. He didn't, but this is what he could have written. Since you will give him authority over all flesh. Or he could have written, since he currently possesses authority over all flesh. What he wrote was pointing backward he doesn't identify the specific moment. That's for us to discern. That's for us to grasp. That's for us to understand. But he does point to the past. And he says, since you have given him authority over all flesh. So there was a transaction between the father and the son. And I'm asserting, I didn't come up with this. I'm just in agreement with those theologians that rightly identify this was a, this was a, kingdom level transaction between the Father God and the Son of God in eternity past in which the Father granted to the Son authority over all flesh. Now, does that disconnect that transaction from the real events of his life in this world? No. His, his obedience to the assignment the purpose and the mission that the Father gave him in this world, a saving purpose, his obedience to that will be met with the reward of the very thing that was granted to him. It was granted to him in the past, but it was granted in anticipation of his entry into this world and his fulfillment of those great saving purposes. This is... Similar to, keep your place if you're, um, if you're in John 17. Let's look back to a very familiar portion in a recent study that we did in the Gospel of Matthew. At the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, it's not too far behind us now in our studies. In Matthew chapter 28, this is how Matthew concludes his Gospel account. Verse 18, this is the introduction to what we call the Great Commission, where the Lord, as he was leaving this world, left his followers with an assignment, a high-level assignment, an assignment to represent him to all the nations of the earth. 
But before he gives the assignment, he makes a declaration to his disciples to make sure that they understand that the assignment that they're following, the assignment that they're carrying out, is all based in a greater heavenly transaction that's already occurred. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, speaking to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And on with the other details of the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been, again, there's that past tense chronological reference. It's already occurred. He is, at the moment that he's speaking these words, he is in possession of something that only God himself could give or would give. So going back to John 17, as Jesus is praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since, connecting these two thoughts, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Now the Matthew emphasis is all authority in two locations. All authority in heaven, all authority on earth. John's emphasis is slightly different, but it, ha it carries the essential same meaning. Here, the focus, though, has to do with the saving assignment of the Lord. Because he says, you have given him authority over all flesh. Now, there's two possible ways to understand what he means by that. And, and neither one is, is really wrong but one is really what he had in his mind and heart as he was praying these words. Um, on the face of the earth, there are many different classes of creatures that all share one thing in common. We live in bodies of flesh. There are human creatures that have bodies of flesh. There are animal creatures that have bodies of flesh. There are insect creatures. There are bird creatures. There are fish creatures, and we all share bodies of flesh. He could be referencing authority over all bodies of flesh, but that's not what he's really talking about here. That's not what he's really concerned about here. Is he praying about birds and fish and animals at this point in the prayer. He's not focused on that, he's focused on humanity. He's, he's focused on human beings. And I understand in our culture, not that anyone here is necessarily uh, troubled by this perspective, but in our society, we live in a society today that has tended to blur the lines between animal creatures and human creatures, as if we're essentially just belonging to one one classification. Um, Sandy and I went to visit her. I, I think I've even mentioned this once before, but we went to visit her mother who lives in Las Vegas last week. And um, there's a set of signs along the highway. And we, you know, Las Vegas is just a long, straight highway. So you just, you're looking for things to to catch your attention so that you don't get too bored as you're driving. So I'm reading the signs on the side of the road in this one set of signs. Uh, the sign says, animals are people too. 
I mean, number one, why would anybody buy a sign and put that on the road to Las Vegas? I don't, I don't even understand the rationale behind that. But think about the implications of the sign for a moment. Animals are people too. What does that mean? It means they're blurring the lines. Biblically, we understand that animals have a significance and they have a purpose in this world. They are God's creatures. And he created them for special reasons and special purposes. But they're not human beings. They don't bear God's image in the way that only human beings can and are meant to do. So animals, I'm sorry, but animals are not people too. Animals are what? Animals. It doesn't mean you can't love your animals. It doesn't mean you can't care for your animals. You can and should. But don't treat them like people. They're not. They're not members of the family in that sense. So he's not praying about animals here. He's praying about humanity. He's praying about human beings. Special classification of God's creation that, that is capable of bearing him as his image. And he says this, since you have given him authority over all flesh. All flesh was the common Jewish way in that day, in that society, in that culture, to refer to what we now call all humanity. Now, just think about the implications of this for a moment. I don't think anyone here will have a problem with this, but even among us, just let the implications settle on your mind and heart for a moment. Jesus apparently believed this because he's praying it as if it's true. I happen to think he's right. You should too. How many times has Jesus been wrong track record-wise? I haven't caught him being wrong yet. He probably won't start anytime soon. So what's the implication of his statement that he believed since you have given him, that's the son of God, that's Jesus himself, you have given him authority over all humanity. Matthew classifies it as all authority in heaven. That's over angels and the redeemed and all authority on earth that's over whom on earth all humanity and all spiritual entities both faithful to God the angelic and unfaithful and disobedient and in rebellion to God the demonic all authority in heaven and on earth but here he's only praying about the humanity portion of those that live on the earth. Jesus has authority over all humanity. Does all humanity recognize his authority? No. Does all humanity honor his authority? No. Does all humanity, humanity obey and respond as they should to his authority? No. But there is, as we were singing this morning, there is coming a day when they will. Not by choice, but by compulsion. That day is his return in great power and glory and the fullness of the expression of his authority in which every knee will bow to him and acknowledge he is Lord. And every tongue will confess, yes, you are the Lord over me and over everyone else. But that won't be a saving recognition 
on that day, that will just simply be an owed recognition, an indebted recognition of I was wrong and you were right. I was wrong, your word was right. I was wrong and the true church was right all along. But whether they acknowledge and recognize his authority or not, the point of the prayer is he possesses authority over everyone. There's not a single human being that is alive in this world that is not under the authority of the one who sits upon the throne. And they will all give an account to him for the lives that they live in this world. Every decision they make, every action, even every thought and secret intention of their heart will be brought to the light and will be made to be given an account for. It's just interesting to me that as he's coming to the end of his life in this world, the end of his natural life, he's coming to his death on the cross, that he is conscious and aware and thinking about the authority that he holds over everyone. Now, think of what that implies just for the story that's immediately ahead of him. He's about to be arrested by natural human authorities on trumped up false charges, and he is going to go along with it. He's not going to resist it, though he has complete authority over it. As he said even to the arresting contingent that came to, to seize him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, if I wanted to, I could call legions, I could call him my father and he would send legions of angels to my defense. The point is, the only reason these events are going to unfold in the way they need to unfold is because they need to unfold this way in order for him to fulfill his saving mission. So he says, you have given him authority over all flesh, but he doesn't end his concern there and he doesn't end this part of his prayer there. He connects it to the next statement he makes, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He was given authority overall to give eternal life to all of those who were given to him. The idea that's important to understand and that is often missed in the consideration of the saving work of the Lord is it takes authority, spiritual, divine authority in order to save someone. Saving, the saving work of Christ is not, you know what, I'm going to come to earth, I'm going to live a perfect life, I'm going to die on the cross, and in that death on the cross, I'm just going to try to save as many as I possibly can. I'm not sure how many I'm going to be able to save, but I'm going to make my best effort. I'm going to, I'm going to lay it all out there on the cross, and I'm just going to hope for the best after that. That's not the story of the cross. The story of the cross is a story of authority in action. The story of the Apostle Paul, as I was emphasizing this morning in our communion exhortation and in our prayer focus, 
was a story of an interruption of a life. Saul of Tarsus on his way on the road to Damascus to do what was in his heart to do, which was an evil deed. He was a persecutor of the, the early followers of the Lord, the first great persecutor of the church. And the Lord interrupted him on the road without stopping and asking his permission and said, you belong to me and I've got a plan and a purpose for your life. How is he speaking to Saul of Tarsus? He's speaking with divine authority, divine saving authority. He can save him because he's in charge of him. The Lord saved me because he was in charge of me, even though I didn't know he was in charge of me. And in saving me, he expressed his duly constituted authority. But it was divine authority. When the Lord says, you have given him, the Father has given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, what is implied is the Father gave divine authority to the Son, which it's not the primary focus of this part of the prayer, but it is clearly implied. What does that mean about the Son then? It means that he is divine. You cannot fully bear divine authority without being fully divine yourself. He is God the Son who will receive the transfer of the authority to save from the Father God. Now, he's in charge of everyone. And... The question is, what does that look like in practical expression? He's in charge of everyone, and he's in charge of everyone with the intention and purpose to save. He says, this, excuse me, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now there's two possible ways to read that second phrase. And only two, and one is right and one is wrong, and it's super important that we read it the right way. In verse 2, who was he given authority over first? We've already talked about this. He was given authority over all flesh, which implies he has authority over who? Divine authority over who? All humanity, everyone, every soul, every person that's ever lived, that is alive now, or that ever will live. They are under the authority of the Son of God who sits upon the throne of God. He's got authority over everyone. But he connects it to this saving purpose. He says, to give eternal life. He was given authority over everyone to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the question is, what does he mean to all whom you have given him? He's talking about a second transaction. So there are two transactions happening here between father and son. And in both cases, the father is giving something to the son that he gave to no other human being in all of human history. He gave the son full, conferred upon him full divine authority over all humanity. And he gave to the son what? He gave to the son people. It says here, Rereading that second phrase, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Apparently, and again, this is in the past, not in the future, not to all whom you will give him, 
but all whom you have given him. Apparently, there are people that belong to the Father that are given to the Son in order to save with the full divine authority that he was granted over all of humanity. So I'm saying there's two ways to read this and only two ways. One is deadly wrong and one is gloriously right. One way to read this, the wrong way, the deadly wrong way to read it is, he was given authority all, over all of humanity in order to save all of humanity. This is the doctrine or the principle of what is known in salvation theology as universalism. The idea that eventually, ultimately, the Lord will save every human being and some extreme universalists even go so far as to believe that even fallen angels and demonic beings will ultimately be saved that none will be lost and there are there are renegade theologians that that you know uh, have taught this in every generation uh, in our current generation probably the most famous example was a, a theologian a pastor really uh, by the name of rob bell who uh, wrote a book called love wins and uh, it had its brief moment in the spotlight, uh, became kind of a, a flurry of sales on uh, Amazon uh, and in and, and, uh, Christian bookseller uh, websites. And uh, his insistence was that because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, uh, that ultimately that means he will save all of the world. Love will win in the end by overcoming all resistance in the heart and mind and soul of every human being. Did Jesus really believe that? Did he teach that? Did he emphasize that? Is he praying about that? The answer is no, the Lord is not a universalist when it comes to the work of salvation. He is what is known, instead of, a, instead of the doctrine of universalism, it's the true understanding of salvation is the doctrine of particularism. What I, what's meant by that is simply, the Lord looked out over all of humanity, and while he had authority over all humanity, he chose to save some from the many. He chose to save some from the many. And what we're going to see is that ultimately that will bring even greater glory to the Lord in the full light of eternity. But let's just remind ourselves from one portion. I won't have time to fully develop this in any, any, anywhere close to uh, what the passage deserves. But look for just a moment over in Romans chapter 9 where Paul uh, takes the time to teach on this very difficult and challenging doctrine but in more detail. Romans chapter 9. I'll read from verse 14. He's talking about the doctrine of salvation. And he says this, and we're jumping right in the middle of his argument, but for our sake of our time, we need to do that. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? What he's talking about is there injustice in that God has chosen to save some, but not all. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. This, that, that statement that God made to Moses becomes meaningless if he intends to show saving mercy on every single human being. 
I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, and he's talking about salvation, salvation, so then salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my, my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Was, was Pharaoh's story a saving story? Pharaoh's story. Moses' story was a saving story. Israel's story was a saving story. But Pharaoh's story was not a saving story. The Lord raised Pharaoh up for a purpose, but it wasn't a saving purpose. For this very purpose I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens. He hardens whomever he wills. He has authority over all. Now that Paul understands this is hard to grasp. It's hard, it's hard on our hearts. At, at first glance it doesn't seem, and this is the operative word, it doesn't seem fair and so he addresses the issue in verse 19 and beyond. He says, you will then say to me, Paul anticipates the, the objection in our hearts, our natural perspective will object to this. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does God judge anyone if he's choosing who to save and who not to save? For who can resist his will? And here's his response. Here's Paul's response, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the, the right answer to such an objection. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? If you ever, if if you ever sat down to do a painting or do a drawing, I know Ethan, uh, Ethan's a, an accomplished drawer, he's an artist. When he sits down to do a drawing, does Ethan not have the right to draw whatever he wants, however he wants to draw it? Will the drawing say to Ethan, why did you draw me like this? It's not fair. I wanted to be drawn this other way instead of this way. The point is, there's, there, there's deep mystery of deep sovereignty in the backstory of the saving story that we enjoy and that we share. So going back then to to John 17. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom, to all whom you have given him. He was given authority over everyone in order to save some of them. I want to remind us from a study we did, and this is a long time ago, much earlier in our Gospel of Matthew study. This is just from one of the parables. We developed this in detail when we were there, but in Matthew 13, just a single verse parable, it's, a, it's the shortest of the parables, but it tells this same story. Matthew 13, and I'll read from verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now this is traditionally and commonly even by well-intentioned believers 
Um, and I explained this when we went through this in detail together, but this is traditionally uh, describing the man as the believer. You, you and I, finding the treasure of salvation. There's a, there's a big problem with that viewpoint and that understanding of this parable. That's not what Jesus is talking about at all. Um, we didn't purchase salvation. There's no way we could have. Even if we had sold everything that belonged to us, we wouldn't have been able to come up with the price of salvation. The only one that was able to pay the price for our salvation was the Son of God. And he did pay the price. But in the parable, what did he actually purchase? In this parable. Then in his joy, he's the man. The Lord Jesus is the man of the parable, as he is in all of the kingdom parables in chapter 13. You might remember from our study. Then in his joy, this is the Lord's joy, he was motivated by joy in his saving sacrifice. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, meaning he gave up his life, and his life was a high enough price to pay for our salvation. But what did he actually purchase? He buys that field. The field in this parable, you might remember, is the entire world and everything in it. The cross purchased the world. The cross purchased everything. But he did it. Why did he buy the field? Why did this man in the parable buy the field? What was he after? He was after a treasure that was hidden in the field. He was after you. And he was after me. But he bought, he, the price that he paid was so great that it was sufficient to cover everything. So he was granted authority over everything in order to save something special within the world, something special within the field, the treasure which are his people, his selected and chosen ones. All right, we have more to cover in verse 3, uh, but I don't want to rush through it, and we're at the very end of our time, so I'm going to end us right in the middle of verse 3, Lord willing. Next time we will pick up with the Lord's own definition of the nature, the true nature of eternal life. And uh, it's probably for the best anyway, because that certainly deserves its own study. So let's uh, stop. We'll pause our study here. Lord willing, two weeks from today, we'll pick it up again. But let's pray just before we go on with the rest of our day. Father, I want to thank you that we belong to the Son of God to whom you have given authority over all of humanity. And you gave him that authority in order to save a treasure and you have chosen to include us in that treasure. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it in any sense. I'm thankful for the testimony that you yourself gave to Moses, that you will have mercy on whom you will have mercy. You will show compassion to whom you will show compassion. You are free in your saving work, and you freely chose to save us. I thank you for that work. I thank you for the one that has the authority to save. And I thank you, Lord, that the work that he does with that divine authority is full, it's deep, and it's complete. I bless your name. 
for your saving work in our hearts. Amen.